Right. Um, yeah, so I've been asked to speak on Psalm 8. Um, you know, a, a set of things through the Psalms. And um, I suppose I'd probably start my, my personal background is that, hey, I, I grew up in a church and, you know, in a Christian family. And uh, it's not my testimony, but there was times here and then I came back and then I met Esther and we got married. And um, the Psalms were just a, they were just a book in the Bible. Uh, and, um, you know, and we went to a church very much like this one or different sorts of churches. And um, when, we got when we got married, we were in Northern Ireland and we were going to um, a Reformed Presbyterian church. And it's a church where they only sing the Psalms. Um, they actually sing them a cappella as well, but the important thing is that they only sang Psalms. So they would have what was the, the, the Scottish metrical uh, book of Psalms uh, and a more modern version of it. And this was the first time I'd really, really encountered the idea of singing Psalms. Um, now, obviously, we don't align completely with the way that they, they view they should do that. But the value of singing psalms was brought back to me. I just wish we would sing more psalms sometimes. I wish that some of the people with musical gifts could create psalms in a way that really enables us to get behind them in our modern context. Um, so, I, you know, we would have this little red book and it would have this, the names of the tunes that you would sing the psalms to. And that just reminds me of the Psalms here, you know. And it says, for the example, Psalm 8, according to Githis, Psalm 9 says, to the tune of the death of a son. So they have, even in our culture here, into a couple of centuries ago, people were singing Psalms. Yeah, that's what, until about the 15th century, that's what everybody sang. They sang Psalms. Okay, that's slightly my, my personal experience of it, which is the value and, the, and the, the love of singing psalms is a good thing. Okay, so two things which we'd like to, I'd like to pull out of this. Um, first of all, what does the psalm 8 teach us about coming to God in prayer? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? And lastly, what does it teach us about Christ? Um, one of the things that I remember from this church uh, as his father being associated with the, was a preaching series which was Christ in the Psalms, going through the Psalms and pulling him out of it. Right, so without further ado, let's just get down to business. Psalm 8, for the director of music, according to Githith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the work of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay, so what sort of psalm is this? 
David was a man who was prone to a lot of troubles, a lot of struggles. Um, God loved him because even though he felt, he always came back. He was The root tone of his life was to be orientated towards God. He got pulled one way, pulled another. So some of his psalms are really about his struggles and him calling to God in his struggles and him regretting things but coming back to God. This is not a psalm like that. Okay? It's a psalm where this man who would go so low could also be pulled up very high. And when he was pulled up high, he would give us great wisdom. This is a psalm of wisdom, wonder, and worship. Okay? It's a very modern www dot something song. Okay? Um, now, it, you can divide it different ways. Um, the psalm starts with a section uh, which is about the majesty of God. And then, just for good measure, it finishes it with the same words about the majesty of God. So that gives you the context. And then within it, there are several different sections. I've called them uh, the paradox of praise, the parade of God's splendour, the paradox of man, and the place of man. Or um, So I've managed to get my... I've got some alliteration in there, so it's a good sermon. Right. <laughs> so let's start then. The majesty of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So how do we come to God? Right, well, it, in my version of the NIV here, which is um, back from, it's from the 80s. Right, so there are, there are some distances from when you... The, the one you may have at the moment. Um, it's not just, oh Lord, oh Lord, you're addressing someone. There's this sense of coming before in awe. Somebody who's bigger than you. I don't say, oh, mum. You know? You say, oh Lord. Okay. So, our Lord, he is he belongs to us. We belong to him. He belongs to us. It doesn't say my Lord. It says our Lord. For all of us. So he is together with us. We, we belong to each other. And if you think about it, what did Jesus say? Our Father who is in heaven. Pulls us all together. Jesus brings him closer, not just the Lord, but a Father. So, while we have this reverence, which David has, which you see clearly, we also now know that God is Abba. And so, part of the problem with us feeling worried about being too familiar with God is that actually we struggle with this idea that your father is somebody you mightily love and you're familiar with, but you also deeply respect. Right? But that's true about God. It's how we should respect our mothers and fathers as well. Um, but it's difficult because we see all their flaws, right? So, um, so my kids are let off. Because um, <laughs> they see my flaws. Um, anyway, so there's this awe and reverence. Now, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
everywhere you go in the world. Your name is majestic. Now, do you think people see this? It doesn't seem to me that this is what all the earth is going around saying, how majestic is your name? Right? But it is. It is majestic in all the earth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made. So the Bible says that you can see things about God, the type of God he is, by looking at what he's created. Okay? And that's displayed for everybody to see. So, how do you come to God? You acknowledge him as our Lord, and you look at his handiwork around you, and you acknowledge him for that. So, that's the first and the last verse, so I won't deal with the last verse when we come to it. So. Um, the next section is honesty, the, the piece that makes me, I found the difficult, most difficult to understand in this psalm. You've set your glory above the heavens, from the lips of children and infants, you, and infants. You have established or ordained praise or a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've looked at the different translations, the way things seem to be uh, put together, and it seems to be one of those things that in the Hebrew gives you a concept which you can't quite match in English. And so you get different aspects of it coming out. But first of all, let's have a look at a couple of things. First of all, God has enemies. That's what jumped out to me about this. I didn't really understand it. Said, but what? Let's, let's look at something. God has enemies. Who are God's enemies? Where are God's enemies? They're, they're your enemies, you see. David's not saying they're my enemies. So David would have known in the Old Testament about the story of Job. He knows about the, the courts of the, the Satan coming and accusing people. He knows who God's enemy is. He knows that there is the heavenly places, there is a fight going on in those places. He knows that. In the New Testament, we all know, Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, what sort of weapons do we have against this? Well, if you're looking at the news now, you know, well, we were using smart bombs, hypersonic missiles, and all this horrible stuff that you see going on in Ukraine, um, which is just where you see how we almost venerate the power of people to kill other people. Those are the sort of things that attract us. We see power, you know, who's going to win? Who's the most powerful? Who has the best weapons? Well, that's not how God works. We took that into our church life. What does it work? How does it work? Does it mean it's biggest church? Online prayer meetings? Most holy people? Hmm. Well, what does David say in this? From the lips of children and influence, you have ordained praise. That's my older version. The other ones say you've established a stronghold. Ordained, established, defined. 
praise and the power and the strength is what God is his way. Praising God, setting forth the truth about him. And who does it come from? Does it come from the biggest bishop in the land, the high priest, the whatever? No. They're not here now, but it comes from the children and the infants. God values and puts power on these children and infants more than everything else that there is in the whole of creation. So, that's what God's heart, heart is for children. They speak into the heavenly powers. And what do they do? They silence, they silence the foe and the avenger. God's enemies, the evil powers. So, the interesting thing about this is to understand it, you know, who, who quoted this, this, this verse? Well, Jesus did. In Matthew 21, he was in the, he was in the um, temple and he's doing stuff and the kids are getting really excited and they're causing a ruckus because they recognise God's here, God's doing something. Isn't this wonderful? Hosanna! They're shouting. And the spiritual powers around him don't like that because they feel that they're losing power. And the spiritual powers around him are the Pharisees. And so they're disturbed. They feel it in their spirit. They don't like it. So they come to Jesus and say, tell them to stop. And Jesus goes back to this verse and he says, haven't you read from the lips of children and infants? Now, they were being silenced. They couldn't say what they wanted to say because they loved, they were losing power and influence because children are praising God. And there's a little dig there from Jesus, which isn't apparent, because if you're being silenced, is that because you are God's enemies? The Pharisees probably didn't like that either. So, the next section, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place. So, what I've got here is uh, just a random picture of the Milky Way. And it doesn't show up very well because lights and everything like that, and it's too far away from me. But it's something which we don't do nowadays. We don't get out and see the sky as it is. There's probably, I probably count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I've been out and it's night and it's warm enough to just lie out and I'm somewhere where there's not light pollution all around me and I can just go, wow. And I think well, maybe we should all do it. You know? Just go, wow. Because David, growing up as a shepherd, being out overnight in the fields, and actually living in a warm country where you can go out on the roof in the middle of the night and you can just go, well, because you don't have all these streetlights around you as well, um, had a few advantages over us. Um, he, could, he could see that. He could go, wow. They're God's heavens. They're the work of his fingers. When you want to express an artist at work, you know, when you create something, there's somebody here who uses their fingers a lot for painting and playing music. 
And we all recognize that when you want to create, you use your fingers to mark a larger tree. The moon and the stars that you set in place, God defined where they should be and how they should work. Okay? So it's actually quite good because at the moment, recently there's been a, a massive uh, change in the, in the scientific world. They've, they've had this space telescope being put up by NASA. It's the James Webb Space Telescope. And um, it's previously they had Hubble, which was also a space telescope, but not as, not as powerful. Now this space telescope is looking at the cosmos and seeing things which are further away and more amazing than ever before. So, yes, David had an advantage over us because he would go out and see it. We can see so much more than David could see. We know so much more than what he could ever see about what God has made. So, the next picture then. So, for example, here's one from the Space Telescope, which you can't really see. It's, it's pretty rubbish. But this is an image of something from that previously has not been visible because they're all these. This image here, if you took a grain of sand, held it out at arm's length, and you put it in the sky, that grain of scan, the sand would be this area of sky. Right? It shows um, a set of galaxies which are so far away that they're in the infrared. They, they, as they go further away, the furthest galaxies away are also going more into the infrared because of physics, right? So it shows things which have never before been seen and it shows galaxies and galaxies and galaxies and galaxies. Every line in that is a galaxy. When you saw the picture of the Milky Way before, that is us within our galaxy. And we look in, we're in this big spiral and we see outside. We see, see in the plane of the galaxy, we see all the stars. Each one of those dots, lines, is a galaxy. When it's a line, it's because you're seeing it side on. And it's also performing a magnifying effect on galaxies which are even further away in deep space. And that is just an area of the sky, which is like a grain of sand. And each one of those is a galaxy with billions of stars. Right? So, whoa. <laughs> um, so, David did have some advantages, but wow. Um, so, in all of that, what's man? Who are you? you? You are insignificant. You mean nothing. In comparison to all of that, you're nothing. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honour. Yeah. What are you? Anything much? Well, actually, a little lower than God, crowned with glory and honour. That's the paradox, that you're so small that you're crowned with glory and honour. Well, is that really the case? Because the Bible does say you're dust. Because all you are is a bit of dust. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. God says in Psalm 90, verse 3, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. James 4, 14, you're a mist. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a while and vanishes. Psalm 144, 
you are a breath, a fleeting shadow. They are a breath, their days are like a fleeting shadow, is what it says. If you were to take everything that's in your body, you're 65% water, 20% protein, and some other stuff. You are 65% oxygen, 18.5% carbon, 10% hydrogen, a bit of calcium and nitrogen, and a few more things. Right? It's not very impressive. Right? And when you get down to those, so I'm talking about the atoms, but when you actually get down below that into the molecules, most of that is still empty space because of physics. What are you? Well, there's a clue in the fact that in Psalms 143, 139, it says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The thing that you live in, your body, is just a vehicle for you. It is fearfully and wonderfully made. But what we see now, and what we know about our body, David said it's fearfully and wonderfully made. We know now how fearfully and wonderfully it is made much more. We don't actually know exactly how it all functions. But we know how cells work. We know how cell division works. We know how all the different art things within a cell function. We understand how cells are put together. We understand how energy is created within cells. We understand how DNA works. Well, sort of understand that DNA exists. And we sort of understand how the code works. We can see the complexity and the systems and everything within our body in a much greater way because of science. So, that's good. So remember, when you come to God, God made you, he cares for you, he is mindful of you, he thinks of you, and he has crowned you with glory and honour. So now I've just looked at my time, and I'm running long. So, the next thing then, the place of man. You created him a little lower than God, you put all things under his feet. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. Flocks and herds and all wild animals, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. So man has a high position and God has made him ruler. He has given him power over the works of God's hands. He's put man in charge. So this is not, anybody who reads this is going to say, well, yeah, okay, that's fine, but He's alluding to Genesis. He's going right back to the beginning. And in Genesis, I won't read it, but you know, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. He talks about all those things that are going on. Um, and he finishes off, be fruitful and increase in number. So it's not actually the complexity of your body. It's not actually the amount of design and wonder that's going on in you that makes you so important to God. It's that he has made you in the image of him. An animal is also powerfully, wonderfully made. All that, all that complexity that you've got in your body, there are so many things that you can see that sort of complexity around you. But nothing else, no one else is, in creation is made in the image of God. That little child you have is made in the image of God. And then secondly, see God's heart for us. It's to be blessing, to be fruitful, to fill, to subdue, and to rule. And Christ, how does, how does Jesus come into this? Well, 
First of all, if you were made in the image of God, there's a corollary to that, is that if you're in the image of God, that means God can be a person. God can sit in a human frame and not feel uncomfortable. He can be with us. So first of all, it says in Jesus, uh, sorry, when talking about Jesus, I'm going to go into the New Testament now, because we say, well, in this psalm, where, where does Jesus come into? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is, as a man, the exact representation of God's being. And then in chapter 2, he says, this is where the link is. There is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you're mindful of him, a son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. So he's in the New Testament, we're picking up the Old Testament. And then he says, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might, take death, might taste death for everyone. So when we read, you'll notice that I have read this in my NIV version from the 1980s, and it says things like, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? If you look at the modern versions, they say them, and they make it more generic. Okay? There's an important point here, because that is the sense of the psalm. It's talking about man, people, humankind, the family of humanity, right? in the psalm. But the Hebrew word being used is Adam. Okay? When he talks about man, the Hebrew word for man is Adam. And that is the word that's being used there. The word the son of man is also what Jesus used to apply to himself. So, when we come into Hebrews here, it makes complete sense when you have that reading, but if you have, because there is a literal reading which goes along with the in-your-face reading, okay? That you, you the, the, the natural reading of it, um, there is a literal reading of it which basically says this man is Jesus. And that is what the, re, the, the Hebrew, um, the writer of Hebrews is saying. That man, you're mindful of him, you've put, he's, he's put Jesus at the top. He's put everything under his feet. So you're left with this situation where there are only really two men in all of history. The first one, Adam, was crowned with glory and honour. And then he was found wanting and he fell. And the second man actually started off crowned with glory and honour, but he left that. He came to earth, he died, and he rose victorious. And he is now in heaven, crowned with glory and honour. As I said, Jesus applied the term son of man to himself. And if we look in Daniel, we know where he gets that term from. Let me read the last piece of scripture. This is Daniel. 
In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So that's why Jesus caused problems when he said he was the Son of Man. It sounds innocuous to us, but the Pharisees knew what he was saying. So we can see that there is a Son of Man who is crowned with glory and honour and has everything under his feet. And we remember the last enemy, the last thing to be put under Jesus' feet is death. And everything will come under him. And there will be a man in heaven alongside us forever. God doesn't mind being a man. Because you, all made in the image of God. You may not think you're much, 